0: If you've got a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. So you can go ahead and grab that. Um, We'd love for you to be reading along with us uh, as we walk through this passage. Before we get into the passage today, um, I just want us to take a moment and pray. There's probably people in this room right now that uh, when it says you don't have the strength to hold on, but he's holding on to you, or, or when we sing about being built on the rock, Um, You feel like maybe a little bit shaky right now, and I want to especially pray for you before we launch into this service. I don't want to leave the moment we were just in. Um, There's people in our congregation and around our congregation that are hurting. Specifically, uh, Span Elementary sent a message to us and asked for our congregation to pray for them this morning. There's a little nine-year-old girl this week that was killed in Jackson, uh, Lacey Brace, uh, I'm sorry. I just forgot her name, Uh, but she's nine years old. The news report said that she was part of Baird Elementary, um, but she actually had been a student at SPAN for years, and the teachers are just hurting right now. Um, Her name is Lily Bracey. And so I want us to pray for her family and specifically pray for the teachers. She had been there for four years before she transferred to the other school. So a lot of those teachers had invested in her and had knew her family very well. And so they just asked us, would you guys pray for us as teachers? And so the answer to that is yes. Let's offer prayers to them. There was also um, someone who had been on a Honduras mission trip with us that was hit, in a, hit and run last night and killed in Oxford. And so it's just a really heavy day for some of the people in this room or some of the people that are not with us today. Um, so I want us to pray uh, for the families around that and just suffering. I, I don't want us just to move straight into this passage quite yet. So would you just join me in lifting up? And then then there's also people that haven't been named. We don't know what you're going through, but you probably come into this room feeling like the foundation underneath you is shaky right now. Um, So let's just ask the Lord to be with us in a way that only he can. Father, we lift up those teachers at SPAN and the administrators, the social workers that had worked with this family before, just for the loss of life. It feels devastating not just here in Jackson, also in Oxford, for all the families that are affected um, by these kinds of loss. We just, it's gut-wrenching because we can see this is not, this is not good. It's not as you intended, Lord. This world feels very broken and we feel the, the veil of darkness hiding our face from you at times. Uh, and so we so desperately need to see a vision of your holiness and nearness and kindness, Lord, to remind us and to hold us fast in these moments. Lord, for those that are shaking and hurting in this room, I pray that today that you would minister to us with your nearness. You'd hold us together by the word of your power. You're already holding us together, but emotionally, I pray that would be true. That you would speak calm into our fears. And that even as we look at this passage, I pray that it would speak into the spaces where we feel shaken today. Show us what a sturdy resemblance of you looks like in your people. I pray this for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's hard to hard to kind of move on from those things. I want to uh, start up with Titus and just a couple things before we get into it. This, for us, is week number four in the book of Titus. So if you haven't been here, this is kind of in a uh, In alignment with what we've been looking at in the book of Titus uh, over the last three weeks. And so this is kind of a continuation of Paul's letter to this young pastor who was left in a town to set what remained in order. That means there was some disorder, there were some things that remained, some things that needed to be placed in order. And he's continuing to teach him about that. He's already said, I want you to set up elders, appoint them. Um, appoint elders that can rebuke and teach sound doctrine. And then he said, hey, I not only want you to set up elders, I want you to silence people that are speaking falsehoods. I want you to remove them and do not let them talk. And this is immediately following that passage where it's saying, hey, you shouldn't just set up elders or remove people that shouldn't be talking. There's a way in which this community should behave, and I'm getting ahead of myself. But that's kind of setting up the passage that we're about to look at, starting in chapter uh, two, verse 1, and it'll be on the screen. You can read along. But as for you, that's t- Titus. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Help it to both comfort us and instruct us, correct us, Um, by your word today, and I pray this in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Now, I want you guys to know that everybody is about to get ready to go shopping, and most of you are probably going to go shopping online for the things that you're going to purchase over the next three months leading up until that great event called Christmas. Um, Some of you probably would skip over Halloween and Thanksgiving just to get to Christmas, but I want you to know something that, that Amazon reviews are the bane of my existence, okay? I cannot stand to read over the 3,000 reviews. And one of the things that you need to know is that as you look at these reviews, sometimes they'll have something called a verified purchase review. In other words, there's other reviews being left of people who haven't even purchased the product, okay? There's people out there just typing reviews, I guess, in their free time about what you should and should not purchase online. Now, there's a, there's a reason there's this need for verified purchase because it's kind of like insurance they know the product that they're describing and you not just you can't just read the verified purchase reviews. you also have to read uh, what they're reviewing because sometimes people that are sellers on Amazon this is just uh, this is free information from consumer reports. There was an article a few years ago in Consumer reports it said that sellers on Amazon would not only sell products but once they had gotten to a certain number of reviews, they would change the product they were selling under the same listing, start selling another product, and then they would bring all of the uh, 3,000 five-star reviews with them to some other product that's never had reviews, okay? Now, (laughs) you're wondering, why in the world am I talking about reviews? Imagine with me for a moment if the life that you're living as an individual was used as a product review for Christianity. Imagine if the community that we're part of was being evaluated, okay, as a product review for the redemption that Christ has purchased for his people. Just imagine somebody's going to shadow you for a few days, live in your house, see what kind of lives that Christianity produces. What kind of a re- review would your life be making for the doctrine that we believe? Now, here's an even scarier thought. Let's just say that I'd planted hidden cameras around your life so that the last three days or the last three weeks was a product review for Christianity. Look, I I, I want you to know I haven't done that. It's kind of creepy. But there's a degree to which each one of us, as we live our lives, we're making an argument for the truth of what we believe, either for it or against it. There's some degree that your life is making an argument for our doctrine to the world around us. This is the challenge of the South because everyone who's, quote, saved doesn't always resemble a life that's being saved by Christ. And this is part one of two parts in this passage. We're gonna look at some of these verses that I opened up today on part one and two of training in godliness. What does it mean to be trained by the grace of God in godliness? And here's why this is so important. Why is it important that our lives be trained in godliness? Here's why, okay? It's gonna be on the screen. The Christian community, that's us, is compelling evidence of the truth of the gospel. When the Christian community goes wrong, it's very wrong. When it's right, it's one of the most beautiful things that God's created in order to make an argument to the world around us that what He says is true is actually true. That means that among us, there's this unique culture that's being cultivated where we get to resemble the honor that God has placed on every human being. And it's being restored in every believer, every true believer. It's being restored in this way that we demonstrate the honor of creation to the world around us. And this grace that we're going to talk about in this passage trains this kind of culture. It trains with spiritual leaders, how this can be cultivated, and then also in a community of faith. So we're going to look at what does spiritual leadership look like? And we're going to evaluate first, what is Paul saying to Titus about his role in cultivating this kind of community, okay? what spiritual leadership look like? And he says, as for you, Titus, and then he gives him a few things that he must do. It's not just a few things, but I'm just going to say a few, okay? Just a few things that he says to Titus in this passage. And then also, we're going to look at what he says to Titus to train them in godliness. What is he trying to curate and cultivate in older men? older women, younger women, younger men, and then in bond servants or employees. And so, first, let's ask the Lord to speak to us as we walk through this passage, starting in verse 1. But as for you, Titus, look at the verse again with me. As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine, okay? Now, I've already told you guys that the task has been set out for Titus from the very beginning. I've left you here to put what remains in order. In other words, the chaos that you see around you in the church, I've, let you, I've left you there to do something about it. Now, in this list of things that he's going to be dealing with throughout this book of Titus, number one, sound doctrine. It's very, very important. And we've already dealt with qualified leadership. It's very important that the people that are appointed resemble the honor that God created and designed in creation. And then also, the third thing, silence the people that are unfit. Last week, we talked about those who needed to be quieted or muzzled so that they didn't lead people astray. And then ultimately, he says at the end of that last passage in verse 16, these people Profess to know God, but they deny Him with their works. In other words, their lives are an unverified purchase, if you'll go with my uh, first illustration. Now, I want to first lay out why this is so important that Titus continue to do this. Now, I've already said it's because the community is making an argument for or against Christianity. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, so that why is he giving all this instruction? So that the word of God may not be reviled. He tells Titus in this passage that Christian living provides an apologetic. Then he goes down in verse 8. He says, listen, Titus, you need to have sound speech so that why? Look at verse 8. So that your opponents would have nothing evil to say about us so that in everything he goes through the list and he gets to the people that are employees and he says so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior there's so much in all of this book that's an argument for righteous living and the purpose is so that people would not only hear us declare the excellencies of God and what he's like and what he's done but they'd be able to see us and say that looks compelling so he gives them this first task to teach. He says, I want you to give them instruction, not just on what sound doctrine is, but what the implications are to this. There's a need. Now, I want to say that if Paul is telling Titus to teach them what accords with sound doctrine, it goes without saying that people needed to hear what kind of lives would be in step with what they believe. True doctrine is foundational, and the passage is interesting because he's writing someone who already knows what sound doctrine is, and he's going to go into what the gospel is in just a moment after this poor part. He's saying, I want you to teach them what accords with sound doctrine. That means that they both needed it, and he was commanded to do it. Now, one thing I want you to know before we move any further, that means for us in this room that once you come to Christ, you don't somehow leave your flesh behind you. Some of you came to Christ and you're wondering why it's taking so long for you to grow into a person that resembles Jesus, okay? That's going to be a lifelong pursuit. And the task that that Paul gives Titus in this point to teach those what would accord with it is not a task that we ever let go of. It just keeps on going. We're training ourselves in grace so that our lives continue uh, in the resemblance of him. So this culture needed instruction. He was there. Now, there's a way in which we all know that gravity exists, right? But it's another thing to experience falling. Now, some of you know that you need to be developed, but it's another thing to realize that there's people that might be teaching and instructing It's like believing that something exists but never using it or believing that something works like exercise being good for your body or salads being something that would make you more attractive but you don't eat the salads, okay? He's saying in the midst of this, I want you to step into the gap between what remains and what will be. Titus's charge was to step into all those cultural discongruencies between the confession of our lives and uh, how countercultural it would be to live into that confession his role was to call it out to teach and not only to teach but secondly to model it. look at verse seven and he goes back from addressing the the uh, congregation to uh, addressing Titus again. he says this "Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that in a uh, an appointment may an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So second piece of Titus's charge is to model this, to model in his teaching both good works, that they could see the kind of things that he was instructing to community. Not, it was none of this like, do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. He was saying, follow me. And this was the model, not just of Titus. This is what Paul had demonstrated. In his teaching, show integrity. Don't say one thing and do another. Be dignified. Be worthy of respect in your life and have sound speech around these things. We do need more teaching in in every context, we need people to teach us, but we need also people to model to us what it looks like to follow Jesus. Modeling was not just, uh, I just wanna show you a couple moments in First Thessalonians where Paul describes his ministry of modeling the gospel. It says this in chapter one, verse five of First Thessalonians. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, you are close enough to see our lives. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, we were Im- we were imitating Christ, you were imitating us and Christ, and then other people saw your life as, a, as an example of what it meant to believe. This is the model of discipleship in the New Testament, that we would not only hear good teaching, but we'd be close enough in our lives. This is why you cannot download discipleship in a podcast or watch a video. You need to be... In, in each other's lives in a way that you can see how people are resembling Christ. So he doesn't just tell them to teach. He says to model. Now, I love this picture. It goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter two, he didn't just model it. Paul was so integrated into their lives that he was just affectionately desirous of them. He says this, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but what else? But our very, our own selves. Paul gave his life to the people around him because you'd become very dear to us. There's this affection and love and nearness with the modeling, okay? That's Paul's pattern. He's commanding of Titus. There was an ability to be witnessed so that there wouldn't this growing discongruency between what they believed and how they lived. And there's so many people that would ascribe or try to gain some type of spiritual leadership, but never give you access to their lives? What it looked like in this this context was Titus being a model that they could witness and see and mimic as he was mimicking Christ. Biblical spiritual leadership cultivates that and by being around people like this, it cultivates this holy discontent with whatever the cultural norms are and whatever the cultural expectations are. So his job, Titus's job, is to teach this culture not only what is sound doctrine, but to appoint elders, to teach sound doctrine and to model it. And I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes because of the last piece, uh, what kind of man Titus was, okay? Now, I don't know what kind of man he was. But regularly, Paul is telling him that he needed to rebuke people sharply. I wonder sometimes if maybe Titus was like a soft-spoken man. He was just a gentle man. And so Paul's like, don't let people disregard you. Okay, look at verse 15. How is it he's in and model? Look at it. It says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, this has something maybe to do with Titus, but it probably had more to do with Crete, okay? Someone told me last week, the reason that maybe they had to be rebuked so sharply is because they were like New Yorkers. They weren't gonna listen to anybody. They may, or maybe they're like Southern and they give on a, the impression that they're gonna listen to you, but then they walk away and don't do anything, you know? Either way, he's telling Titus the way that he needs to step into the cultural discongruencies is to say, no, I need you to listen to me. Be persistent. Don't let anyone disregard you. This is saying how he should declare to this audience inside the church. He's not saying you should say this kind of thing outside the church. Okay? He's not telling him how to be a street preacher. He's saying in the context of the church, don't let people not pay attention to you. For those that belong to these house churches, they needed to listen to him and he needed to resist the urge to retreat when they were like, no, we're good we got our own systems. Don't let anyone disregard you. And over and over it says to to say things with authority. Now this is a precarious thing in our current cultural situation because I told you guys a couple weeks ago, we're allergic to authority. We're like scared of it so bad because hierarchy has offended us in some place in the past. And people with authority in so many situations have used it with heavy-handedness or in a way that that didn't uh, that wasn't kind or, or respectful of people. But one of the ways that we're countercultural is that we can speak with authority and we're the kind of people who listen to people who speak with authority. We both offer and welcome people speaking into our lives. And to receive this kind of thing from others, is part of what it means to be in a transformational community. that's starting to resemble Christ over and over, walking towards him where our actions resemble our belief. Now, we hold people in leadership positions in the church just as anyone else in this congregation to be agents of reconciliation, not above us in value or prize, but responsible for our souls. So I want to ask you, who's responsible for you? who's responsible for you There's lots of ways in this what Flannery O'Connor called the Christ-haunted South where we know a lot of things about Christ we want the kingdom of him without the king we we like the things that resemble his morality without him being lord and i think a lot of the ways that this comes out is that we disregard people in spiritual leadership And there's a lot of ways in this Christ-haunted South where we would like to put on external righteousness without internal transformation. And it's really important that, that we understand this before he launches into this list, okay? Because he's about to get at, okay, how should older guys behave, younger guys, younger guys, older women, younger women? How should we behave in this community? What I want you to know is these things are all... a a a work of an inward transformation. But if you've had an inward transformation, the outward adorning of that transformation will resemble these traits. If God has called you to be in any kind of spiritual leadership, part of your role is to cultivate that kind of culture, to train, to model, to speak with authority and not let people disregard you specifically within the context of the household of faith. It's part of what it looks like to cultivate these things, not just to get people to check a box or to resemble the list of things that would mean bellwether. This is what it looks like to resemble the doctrine that we actually confess. It's a very nuanced difference, but it's very important. See, in the South... The goal here isn't just a list of traits that we put on, but that God ultimately rules over all of life. There's not a single square inch that does not belong to him. He doesn't occupy some place in your home or your schedule. He owns the home. He owns the schedule. He has every square inch. It all belongs to him. And so when we think about this list of Christian living, it's really important that we think of it as, hey, God has staked a claim on every aspect of life, every season of life. It all belongs to him. Now he's going to launch into this list of categories and I want you to pray with me that we don't see this just as a measurement of where we're at, but a vision of who we could be if these kinds of belief possessed us in the way that he's uh, describing here. And if it does, there's going to be such a beautiful, compelling, winsome... uh, argument that's made for what we believe. Okay? As Tim Keller puts it in center church, the gospel creates an entirely different way of being human. There's not some there's not some list of things. It creates a completely different way of being human. So what are the distinctions? We're gonna walk through this. I wanna I want as we go through this list, I wanna give you guys what I believe are cultural norms for these groups. And then what is a compelling argument for the gospel within these groups? The first one is older men, okay? Uh, I don't know if you guys know the Muppets, but most people think of older men as Statler as and Waldorf, the guy up in the, up in the top. They're, they're throwing insults and saying, oh, we could have done this better. Why do these young folks say it like this? Or grumpy old men. I aged myself, and there's half the people don't know who this, what this movie is. The older men in this crowd, here's what I want you to know. This is what God's Word calls to us. And, and I like to think of myself as at the middle, okay? I don't think I'm too old yet, and I'm not, I'm not all the way as young as I once was, okay? I know, but people are looking at me. It all depends on where you're sitting in the crowd. God's Word calls us to this beautiful thing where ageism uh, would, would describe people of age as having less to offer, the scriptures would say, hey, no, you have the most to offer. Now, other thing I want to I be clear before I go through this list, this literally means older men. And one of the reasons this is important is because a couple weeks ago, we talked about elders in the church being appointed. This is one of the reasons that we believe there's an office is because in the same context, first he says elders should behave this way. These are the qualifications. And then he says older men. Okay, it's a very similar word, but different in this list, okay? These people aren't officers in the church. These are just old guys, depending on the age of the church, right? Number one, sober-minded. In contrast to drunkenness, they have a clarity of mind. They have good judgment. They have control over their thoughts and their feelings. Their thoughts and feelings aren't controlling them. The God of the Scriptures and His Word controls what they think and feel. They're not just uh, sober-minded. They're dignified, which means worthy of respect. It means He's not frivolous or silly, Self-controlled. It's not just in older men, but younger women, younger women, older men, and younger men. All of them are supposed to not be controlled by their appetites, their emotions, or their desires. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. This is one of the aspects of all of them. Sound in faith. In other words, they have a good grasp on what they believe. Sound in love. Their love and affection for other people isn't going to waver based on how annoyed they are on the day of the week. They have a steadfastness. They're predictable in the right kinds of ways. There's a kind of stability that every community needs to come through this particular population. A healthy collection of older men who are walking with Jesus and worthy of respect, sober-minded, dignified. May this be true of us in this room. If you're older than anyone, may this be true of us. Then in verse 3, he goes on to older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to, to teach what is good. Most of us, when we think about older women in the South, we immediately think of someone like Weezer, who's like saying, hey, I've been in a bad mood for 40 years. Men are here to ruin your life. If you don't know who Weezer is, I'm sorry. Or if uh, 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 maybe Medea, who's, uh, <laughs> who just grows more irreverent, more slanderous with age. That's the world's vision. You've earned your right to have an attitude and say whatever you want because you're old enough to get away with it. This is not the way of Christ. I can drink at noon because I don't really have anywhere I need to be. I'm not responsible for the burden that these younger women carry. I've finally gotten beyond all that. Older women are supposed to be similar to these older men in the church. Reverent in behavior. They're not silly, but they're respectable. It doesn't mean they aren't fun, but it does mean they're not disrespectful. Disrespectful. They no longer laugh at the wrong things, but notice and give their attention to the right things that bring their hearts to attention and awe and wonder. Do you know a woman who has reverence for the things of God? Put your life in proximity to them. They're not slanders, or in other words, they're not a gossip. Scott Saul's uh, description of gossip is, Pornography of the mouth, a cheap trick at somebody else's expense where you have no regard for them. Women who wouldn't repeat the juiciest morsel in the name of prayer requests. They know how to hold damaging information about others in confidence. And in confidence, they don't speak the worst even when they know it. They're not slanderers. Listen, the truth of the gospel transforms the way that we hold sensitive information. Do y'all know that? Here's why. Because God knows everything about us, like the things we wish we could forget. He knows all of those things, and he counted us worthy of his only son to pay the ransom. And we treat others as if the worst parts of them are a magnificent work of redemption. We treat others with the same way that we've been treated. They're not slaves to much wine, just like the older men. They're known for sobriety, clarity of mind, not the mind-numbing that might start at midday. They're depending... Uh, li- listen, these kind of women are sober-minded. They're careful. They're not slaves to much wine. They're able to teach what is good and so trained, just as the church needs spiritual fathers. We also need spiritual mothers. I, listen, there, I don't know that there's been a more difficult generation of orphans within the church where people need to be mothered and fathered spiritually. Older women in this room, I'm not gonna point or look at who you are. Christian behavior is not just about how well you keep your life. It's not just these first things. It's also how you invest in the women around you. You cling to what's good in a way that demonstrates and teaches the women behind you. What is good? Step in. Train the young women. Uh, This is just a plug. This week, uh, we're going to have a women's gathering. And I hope that as many of you as possible can go to it Wednesday night. It's going to be at Jill Bowden's house. You can find the information on our website. Just go and be around one another. Be trained by one another. We need spiritual mothers Can you imagine it if people in this room had any degree of age on the other people in this room would step in and tend and care and train? Listen, the young women in this room are desperate for this. They're so hungry for this. What are they hungry for? Look at verses 4 and 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I don't have a picture of the younger women culturally, but I'll describe it. It means this. Most women, um, most younger women, according to the culture around us, would be occupied with the girls' trip our kids being raised by someone else, husband who's never imposing on their rights. The feminist vision of a young woman is completely free of any covenants or commitments, or free from the love that comes through those covenants and commitments. Rather than the ability for self control, the ability to do whatever they please. That's the worldly vision. And in contrast to that, a countercultural vision that the Bible would describe. Uh, is this list. Now, before I get into the list, I want you to know two things, women. Number one, we need to learn these things in this list. He's assuming that young women would need someone to instruct them on how this is done. So, number one, you need to learn these things. Number two, your relationship with older women is a large part of you learning these things, okay? Don't assume that by reading a book that you'll somehow know how to model this behavior. Books are great, but invite people into your life. Number one, love, what do you need to learn? Love your husbands. It seems like the learning curve can be really steep for a couple years, and I just want those that are newly married in this room to know that. Um, That a lot of times you can feel like you fell into love, but then it can be a trudge after you make the commitment to love one another love your children. All the moms know in this room that sometimes you need someone to train you on how to do this. It does not always come naturally to love your kids. When they walk through months of sleepless nights or it feels like they'll never be rested again, all the younger mothers in this room need people to come around them and show them this is how you love your child self control now we already discussed this before but this is a unified theme every single group needs to show self control pure there's a sense of moral stability about her character she's chaste pure sexually above reproach in her relationships maybe even in the books that she reads or the shows that she watches then she's working at home this means that she has a homeward orientation it doesn't mean that the primary place that you work would be only the home Even if she works outside the home, there's a role in which she's nurturing and caring for the needs that arise in the context of her home. Proverbs 31 describes a worthy woman like this. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. In other words, when you're in your home, it's not just a place to let it pile up. There's a place to step in. Now, this next one is a little bit dangerous, maybe uh, for those that have never heard this before. But the scriptures teach that within the context of marriage, that there's differences between a man and a woman. And one of the differences is that we mutually yield to one another in submission in the church. But there's a specific submission that is for women within the context of the home, submissive to their own husbands. This is God's design and desire for all Christians And specifically in this context, the scriptures here in several other places, you can look in 1 Peter or Ephesians chapter six, there's something unique within the context of marriage that a wife gives yielding to their husband. It doesn't mean that you're some pushover without a voice. Doesn't mean that you're leave it to Beaver, June Cleaver. It doesn't say submissive to all men. So there's no, it's distinctly within the context of the covenant of marriage. And I just want to remind you women in this room that Christ, though superior in every way, learned submission to his parents. That's what Luke said. Not because they were without sin, but because he was perfect in this demonstration. He did it that he might glorify God. Christ ultimately submitted to the will of his father when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And this is an opportunity not to dis, not only to display the equality, but the submission of Jesus in the father. Now, it's a big deal, those of you that are theology nerds, it's a big deal that the son of God's submission to the father is not eternal, because this would mean that in some way he's divided, okay? He's unified, and in these moments he demonstrates yielding he gets into some of those reasons uh, are important, okay? Look, here's why it's important that we learn these things, so that the word of God may not be reviled. You guys still with me? I haven't even gotten to the younger men yet. All you old men feeling spry, this is for you too, okay? Younger men, last verse, and it's the shortest of the passage. Likewise, you urge, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, In contrast to the world's vision to be Peter Pan as long as you possibly can, to avoid commitments and obligations that might limit your freedom to do whatever you want, the biblical vision for manhood is that we would live self-controlled. There's this desire for self-fulfillment that in so many ways have overruled the beauty and the purity and the compelling nature of a man who lives under the bondage of his obligations and and finds that that is true freedom. That's actually where it's at, where they live into the covenants that they've made. That could be one of the most compelling arguments for Christianity. If there was a collection of men in this congregation who said no to sexual immorality, but came under the restrictions of God's design for sexual morality. Proverbs 25 describes it like this, and this is for everyone, okay? If you lack self-control, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now just imagine a yard without a fence in Jackson. Or a house without doors in Jackson, a house without doors or gates or a wall that doesn't exist around a city is a man who says anything goes. Anything that anything can come in, anything can go out. The picture of self-control is a city that has walls. You know what to let in. You know what to let out. You have boundaries. And, and here's the good news, okay, about the gospel. God is in the construction build business. He loves to take broken down places and build up walls so that you know what to let in, and what to keep out. This is a fruit of the spirit of the living God in and, your li- in and through your life to have self-control. All right, last one in the list, okay? Workers, bond servants, verses nine and 10. Now, the world's vision of a workplace is basically the office where Michael Scott is is uh, is a derelict manager. He can't really manage things. But in contrast to that, employees should look like this. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. A couple things about bondservant. The Bible doesn't condone slavery. In fact, it says enslaving others is a sin. Slavery does exist and is prevalent. Uh, it's different than what exists in the States. The goal of looking at slaves in this passage would be something like looking at employees to employers in our context. The cl- closest... Possible application of this to wrap around our minds would be, what does it mean to be an employee? Slaves were, number one, to be submissive to their masters. This doesn't mean that you would do things. uh, It means that you do things under uh, their authority that isn't in contrast to the will of God. You never do something in obedience to an employer um, that would contrast to God's will. But in every way that would be obedient to God, you come under their authority. They were to be well-pleasing. In other words, you uh, as Christian workers, in whatever context, there should be a winsome uh, way that you carry yourself. Where other people around you, this is, it's just pleasing to be around you. They're not argumentative, which means that, that when something is asked of them, they don't have to change what their boss said in order to make it said in a certain way. They're not correcting their boss about all the things. They're not pilfering. They're not stealing things from work in order to use them at home. They're not using the company account for a personal spa day. They're not taking as many company pens so that they have plenty for the book club. They're not taking a ream of paper home so they don't run out for their home printer. They're not pilfering. They're showing good faith. In other words, they can be trusted. Now, that's the conclusion of a list and I want to get your attention again because it's a long list, I know. Imagine with me the beauty of a community that resembles the things said in this list. A community of older women and younger women training and learning from one another. Older men that were worthy of respect and younger men that were self-controlled. It would make a strong argument, would it not, for the word of God not to be reviled? Because that's what's at stake. And I want to ask two questions. The first one is this. What kind of review are we leaving for the gospel we believe? The greatest reflection of good doctrine is the way that we live with each other in this congregation, in our small group, in our homes, in our workplaces. Another way to say this is that your behavior is leaving a review of the redemption that you've proclaimed that belongs to you. It is. Now it's up to you to determine whether or not you're an authenticated purchase. Because some people are leaving a review and they haven't actually gotten the product, okay? You don't know Jesus. He has no possession of your life. And there's no way that you can leave an authentic review if he has not first claimed you as his own. Now, one of the things that you could say today is, hey, I don't know if I actually believe the gospel that you're describing. Some of you could respond to this message by realizing that you haven't believed it and your life gives no evidence that the gospel is true. And there could be a warning in this passage that says, hey, maybe I actually don't believe that. You also could leave here uh, potentially in despair because you're like, oh my goodness, I'm like a a city without walls. I have no self-control. I drink from lunch till passing out, whatever it is. I want you to to know there's a way that you could leave here despairing or motivated and still miss the grace of Christ that exists to train us in godliness. Now, if you leave here just motivated, I guess there could be worse things, but it would last for a couple days and then you're gonna tire out and you're gonna go back to being whatever it is that you were before. My warning for you is that if the Holy Spirit isn't working in it, you're just going to grow tired and then you're gonna forget This is more than a list. This is a way that we can say, how is the gospel cultivating a person that I have not yet become? What is this belief cultivating in my life? And here's my hope for your response. My hope is that your faith firmly planted in the reality of God, God revealed through Christ's work on your behalf on the cross would be producing a life that's connected to others that resembles this. I promise you, it'll make such a beautiful, compelling argument for the gospel. That's why Paul says this is important because others would see these lives and say, I revile that truth. They would dismiss it. That's what's at stake. My hope is that the discrepancies between What you believe and how you behave would continue to be reconciled in this gracious, powerful way where the gospel is training you. My desire is that our faith would be connected together too the older and the younger generations that we would not only hear, but we'd be moved, not in some sentimental way, but radically changed by the hope that God is not finished with us yet. And he's doing something that has not yet been completed. For those that would have voices in your mind that are being accusatory or you feel like there's some accusation against your faith um, today, I want you to know that in humility and repentance, there is relief. And if you feel like, man, I have not been the godly man, older, younger, that I could be, um, I want you to know there's hope today. And the second question is this, are you being trained Because ultimately, the grace of God doesn't just bring salvation, it brings training. Look at the last verse. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So I want to ask you some questions in following up to the being trained. Are you connected to some other people? Some of you really do need to just find a group of people that are walking with Jesus and walk in community to them. That's one of the ways our lives get reconciled between what we believe and how we behave. Are you invested, older men and women? Are you walking with Jesus in a way that's modeling to those around you what it looks like to walk with them? Is it compelling? Every place that it's compelling, we need to celebrate it, okay? Every time you see a worthy man or a worthy woman or a self-controlled man and woman, we see it and celebrate it. Uh, I listened to this interview with this lady who was in charge of Chick-fil-A culture for years. Okay, I can't remember her name. But you know the difference when you go through the drive-thru. Even if you don't smell the food or eat the chicken, between one restaurant that's fast food and Chick-fil-A, they all say the same kinds of things. Someone asked her, how is that possible? She said, every time we see it, we celebrate it. Every single time. Every time we see the absence of it, we correct it. And we're not as fond of that one. In community, we need to be doing both. Where we correct ways that do not resemble Christ and don't let ourselves be disregarded. And we celebrate the ways that it is compelling and beautiful. If you're convicted today, I want you to rejoice with me that God is training us towards godliness. Next week, we're gonna talk through the second part of this passage. And I want you to pray with me that we would live in a more connected way so that God's grace would bring about these kinds of fruit in our lives. Would you pray that with me? Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would um, reap a harvest of fruit in our lives. And when we hear lists like this, I pray that it wouldn't just drive us to be motivated, but it would drive us to your throne, where we might receive not only mercy, but grace to help us in a time of need. I pray that it would transform us, Lord. And I pray this all for the sake of your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.